0: This is Duke University. Well,
1: uh, I am not Matt Nash. Uh, uh, I am the faculty director of uh, the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship uh, at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. Uh, hopefully I got all the pronunciations correct here. Uh, I know a lot of people mispronounce pronounce Fuqua. Uh, but, uh, uh, Matt could not be here. He's our executive director. He had a family health emergency. Everything's going to be fine, but um, he um, expresses his deep regret for not being here. Case, uh, as most of you know, uh, is a center within the business school that's uh, engaged in preparing leaders and organizations to change the world. That's our new uh, tagline we just uh, agreed to yesterday. <laughs> uh, and, uh, we're pretty excited about that. Uh, we are uh, a center uh, that uh, pursues education uh, very aggressively. And we have lots of courses and programs uh, that uh, students are involved with. And uh, uh, we feel like we are uh, training and helping. No, we're not training. We're educating uh, these uh, people to uh, go out and be leaders of consequence, which is a term that uh, we like to use around a few the business we're very much involved with education. We're involved with field building, uh, which is uh, an attempt to make this uh, whole social entrepreneurship thing uh, become even a bigger thing than it, or, than it already is. Uh, as you know, there's an enormous amount of enthusiasm and excitement in this field, uh, a lot going on, uh, and we're uh, right in the heart of it. Uh, since Greg Bees founded our center, uh, you're going to hear from Greg in a second. He uh, uh, founded the center almost 10 years ago. Um, uh, we have been at the heart of the uh, uh, advancement of this field, uh, and we're very proud of that. And we want to keep uh, the momentum going. Uh, we're also uh, being an academic center, uh, heavily involved with research, uh, trying to create new knowledge uh, and new ideas and frameworks that are practitioner friendly. We're, we're not necessarily interested in just talking to other academics. Uh, We are interested in talking to practitioners, uh, and that's really the primary reason we're here today. Uh, We want to interact with practitioners. We want to do a reality test on the kind of research that we're doing. We want to make sure uh, that it's relevant, uh, but actionable and usable. Uh, uh, And so we see today as a chance to present some of our research, also have you hear from practicing social entrepreneurs, uh, having them comment somewhat on some of the ideas we present. Uh, And then also engage all of you in a discussion uh, of uh, where the field's going, what these concepts might mean to you, uh, and and how we can move forward in a more more productive way, being uh, uh, groups that interact with one another, practitioners interacting with uh, uh, academics. Uh, So uh, that's the goal of today. Uh, We've got a very full agenda. Uh, uh, I'm going to hand things over in a second to to, uh, uh, Mark Sermon from the uh, Mozilla Foundation, he's the executive director and he's going to greet you briefly uh, and then uh, we're going to go right into uh, a session with uh, Kathy Clark and Greg Dees uh, uh, and Jordan Caslow from Vision VisionSpring. Uh, so uh, you'll uh, be hearing about uh, all the speakers as we go along. Uh, you also have bios in your, not- uh, in your uh, folders uh, so you'll be able to uh, learn about uh, folks that way also. Uh, So without any further ado, I will hand things over to Mark Sermon, who will have a few words of welcome. Thank you very much, Paul.
2: And I'm not going to speak long, uh, because I'm going to talk about Mozilla this afternoon, and I'm going to pass it to Greg in a a second. But first of all, I just wanted to give you a huge and and hearty welcome from Mozilla. Um, it's not often we get to kind of look out at it, a group of people who in a lot of ways are very much like us in terms of how we think we can shape and change the world uh, for the better. We look at it, a lot of technologists who think like us in terms of how we can shape the world. But Mozilla itself, and I guess I, I'll actually ask the question, how many people here use Firefox? Right? So, but not generally. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, most people like, think of us as Firefox and think of us as a technology organization. But we're also, ourselves, a social enterprise uh, that is there with a, a bigger mission of shaping the internet, protecting openness on the internet, protecting innovation on, on the internet. And so you know, it's not often that we get to deal with other people, talk to other people, who think about social entrepreneurship, think about social enterprise. And you know, we can share some of the ways that, that we play with that. But really, I'm hoping to learn a lot today. Uh, because as somebody who helps to drive this overall organization, uh, that operates in this way, um, you know, as I say, we talk to a lot of engineers, we don't get to learn from you. So that's really what I'm hoping from today. I'm really thankful to Greg and Paul for bringing all you smart people here. Uh, and if there's anything I can do or the, the team here, there's a number of Mozilla people around to help you, or if there's anything you're looking for, just let us know. So welcome and uh, looking forward to talking. And okay, Greg?
3: All right, excellent. Uh, thanks, Mark. Thanks a lot. Um, And we are greatly appreciative of Mozilla for hosting us. Uh, This is a fantastic venue for this. And I think a fantastic venue not just because of the facility, but because of the spiritual affinity, I think, between uh, what Mozilla is doing and what we're all about. So the first session is really on business models. And I think I mic'd so that I don't have to stand... Behind the podium, I can actually come out from behind the podium and talk, which is a good thing for me since I don't like standing behind podiums, uh, never, never have. Um, so the first session is on business models and how do we, are we set up, Aaron? For if I just hit enter, am I going to be up and running here? No, no, we're not in our little. We are good. That's well. It does say Fuqua School of Business, so I guess that's a good advertisement for for Duke. Um, so our first, uh, first session is going to be on business models. And let me say a little bit about what we've been doing. So Kathy and I have been working on a research project around business models for social entrepreneurs. There's always a lot of talk about capital markets for social entrepreneurs, but the flip side of a capital market is the business model that social entrepreneurs uh, have to use that capital. We can make capital markets efficient, but if the business models are inefficient, and if they're using capital poorly, Uh, we're still going to get poor outcomes for the amount of resources that we're pouring into social entrepreneurship. So we need smart business models as well as smart capital markets. And as we talk to to social entrepreneurs, we realize that they constantly struggle with their business models and with making the business models effective. And Kathy's going to talk a lot more about that as we get into the survey that we did. So basic question behind our research project is how can social entrepreneurs design their business models for optimal impact. So this is not simply how do you design a business model for economic sustainability. That's not simply what we're looking for. We're looking for impact. All of our research, and you'll see this as a theme throughout the sessions today, is about achieving social impact. So it's in the case of something like Mozilla, it's not just how does Mozilla achieve financial sustainability, the question is how does Mozilla achieve its objectives of openness, innovation, on the web, um, and do that in a way with a business model that's effective, that's, that allows them to continue their work and do it, do it uh, from a position of strength. And the same is true for any social entrepreneurial organization out there. Um, so we, we want to do rigorous analysis of what the business models are, um, and we want to develop some analytic frameworks. Um, we want to identify the issues uh, social entrepreneurs face, um, when they're struggling with their business models and we're looking at lessons that can be drawn out from global social entrepreneurs. So this is a global study. Just uh, to put it simply, the way we think about social venture strategy breaks it into a couple components, two major components. What's your social impact theory? That is, what is it you think that you're doing that's going to achieve the intended, your intended impact? You want to have an open Did <laughs> I do that? You'd, oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that's, that's my partner buzzing me. I guess she thinks I'm going on too long. <laughs> but, so so, so what's, what's your impact theory? What do you think you're going to do that's actually going to achieve the end result you're aiming for? So why do you think putting Firefox out there, we'll get at this later, is going to achieve the in- impact of an innovative Internet? for instance, or any, any kind of thing. Why do you think this reading program in third grade is gonna make a difference to graduation rates or to school, kids' success in school later? So that's your social impact theory, and then it's gotta be reinforced with some kind of business model that lets you execute on that theory. For us, the business model has two components, an operating model and a resource strategy. So how are you gonna operate? How are you gonna do it? you do it over the internet. You're gonna build buildings to do it. You're gonna have staff. Are you going to? Have, what kind of equipment do you need to do it? How are you going to operate? And then how are you going to fund those operations? What resources do you need to pull that off? What human resources? What technological resources? What financial resources are you going to need to pull that off? That's uh, that, those two pieces we think are extremely important. Um, Defining it. So, this is a. I'm not going to go through this in detail given that we're going to try to run through this upfront presentation quickly. Um, but this gives you an idea of the different levers that uh, social entrepreneurs have for changing and articulating and modifying their business models. And they've got all kinds of levers, and this is an oversimplified picture of the different options that they have for changing their business models. Um, so, just quickly, you know, they've got people who provide the tangible resources that they use, and they have to create value propositions for those folks. Why provide the resources? So they've got to got to give them a value proposition for doing that. They've got their own internal value chains, what they do with those resources to create whatever it is they're delivering to, to anybody on this end who are either the end users, paying customers, distributors. Uh, they may have partners in their network who are working with them. They may be offering... Let's say uh, uh, a job training program for unwed mothers and they need to offer. They have daycare. They may have a partner who offers the daycare so that uh, the unwed mothers can go through the job training program. So they may have partners in their, in their network. So all, all of these things are determined, help determine the cost of the venture, the way the venture is structured. What can they farm out to others? What are they gonna do themselves? Um, they've got capital requirements that are determined by this. Um, they'll have <coughs> revenue that's generated here that determines an operating deficit or surplus. They're going to have growth plans and projections that can determine capital needed, et cetera. And so you can go on down here, figure out whether there's any funds available for reinvestment, and then they're going to have to raise capital um, or subsidize their operations. This is a a complex model. We're not going to get into the details, but the the idea here is that they've got a lot of levers to pull, lots of places in which they can change their business models in terms of where they're sourcing uh, capital and other Good. So, I'm going to pass this off to Kathy, who's going to talk uh, about the survey that we did of global social entrepreneurs. I have two
4: questions. One is, can I turn my microphone on now? Okay. And the second one is, is there a reason that things are happening on Can we get a picture on this side too so the side of the room can see? We can't. Okay. So, if you guys want to move over uh, to see, I'm going to let you do that. <laughs> When it's time for us to chat, maybe we'll move our chairs as well. All So we put together the analytical framework that Greg just showed you. And then we said, all right, that's all well and good. Nice picture. What are social entrepreneurs actually going through with their own um, business models? So we did an online survey through February and April of 2009 through 15 intermediary partners, um, uh, funders, and membership groups like the Skoll Foundation, Ashoka, um, Social uh, Enterprise Alliance, Investor Circle, Social Venture Network. um, And we sent uh, it out to all of their members and said, tell us about the things that you're concerned about with your business model. Um, From an academic point of view, of course, this is now a self-selected, (laughs) non-representative group. So we have to give that caveat. We had about 400 social entrepreneurs who visited the survey. And we reduced our sample to those who um, answered yes to our three screening questions uh, about explicit mission, integrating that mission into your operations, um, and determining success or failure. Notice, we were sector neutral. Right? It's not about for-profit, nonprofit. It's about the primacy of your mission and how you uh, uh, operationalize around it. Um, and then we um, got rid of people who didn't either complete the survey or who had incorporated too early. Um, what we ended up with was a sample of about 138 organizations, um, pretty evenly split between for-profit and nonprofit, which is rare to see in these kinds of surveys. Um, 24% of the survey, about a quarter, between 1 and 5 million in revenues. Um, 60% of the sample, pretty small, less than a million. Okay, so to give you a sense, so we have even uh, a sector. We have uh, pretty low on the revenue, but we have median age, mean age, mean age of about 12 years old. Um, employee size. Uh, A mean number was about 52. Most of them were based in the US, but 15% were outside. And they were really um, quite nicely split between kind of the primary areas that you see in social enterprise, education, finance, health, community development, and so on. Um, What did we learn from this? Well, we had a few surprises. The first thing is that nearly every respondent told us that they are changing their business models constantly. Only 9% hadn't made any significant changes over the last three years, and only 6% said they weren't going to make significant changes in the next three years. Um, They said their current business models were effective, but not permanent. Only 16% said their models were robust enough to withstand economic changes, right? So this is an area of high concern this is not kind of an academic thing. You know, it turns out when you ask people about their business model, people often don't know how to talk about it. But when you ask them, well, have you changed your revenue model? Have you changed the services that you're providing? Have you thought about your, your employee uh, 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 practices? And what about your marketing? Yes, 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 yes. And so that's what we were really looking at. Um, And the other thing is that we did this survey kind of right as the recession was coming about and we wanted to make sure we weren't just getting recession information. Um, And people told us very, very clearly the recession is not the driver of this constant change. This is actually what we do. (laughs) Um, When you look at how people in the survey reported on their own financial performance or social performance, it turns out the people who are making the most changes are the most confident about their ultimate outcomes, okay? High correlation. The only real high correlation we found in our study was in this confidence. Um, If I am proactively working on this, I think I'm getting better results at the end. Um, They have more confidence in the correlation with financial um, making a difference. Um, Many of them were already confident about their social kind of know what, you know, this is what we do, and then we're we're good at doing that. Um, The other thing that came out was the role of earned income and subsidies. Um, People being a little bit unsure about how to deal with that as they grow, Um, especially some of the social entrepreneurs. Because of our sample, because we went to social entrepreneurs who are kind of, in some ways, part of an elite group, maybe funded by uh, some of the top foundations in this area, many of them have gotten very large grants. Uh, and there was, there was a concern of kind of how to migrate out of that um, into longer sustainability. Um, and another trend that we've seen both in this survey and the interviews that we've been doing since um, are about this idea of um, being very careful about where the boundaries of your business are as you grow. And we see a lot of entrepreneurs starting to um, outsource or partner some of the core functions that they thought they had to do at the beginning, but as they get more sophisticated, they realize, you know, we can actually be smaller and scale more effectively, or we can be a little bit different in terms of things that we know we can do well and maybe some other people can handle. Um, And the top things that people were changing were really fundamental things, the product and service that they were offering, the um, way that they were getting their revenues, um, and marketing. So we um, did this survey and then we have been interviewing um, social entrepreneurs um, for the past six months or so to understand um, some of the drivers around innovation in business models, some of the decisions people have made. And we realized that to organize these, I'm sorry, to organize these lessons in a way that other practitioners can um, make use of them, we needed to develop some sort of principle of organization. And what we are developing um, is kind of a typology of business model role. Um, We're building on some work that some people at MIT did. We've simplified it a little bit and changed it for the social entrepreneurial market. But what we basically have is across the top, we have what? What is the asset um, primarily that you are using to create value from? Um, And down the side, we have how. Are you creating it? Are you distributing it? Are you leasing it or renting it? Um, Or are you a broker for it? Um, And it turns out, kind of much to our surprise, that you can pretty much capture most of the field in in, in these eight categories. So what's interesting about this is not, can we put them into a slot? Um, And many organizations do not belong in just one slot, right? The most sophisticated organizations do a lot of different things, and, and we acknowledge that. The most interesting thing that happens actually is what about the peer clusters that are formed within each of these? So we had a really interesting conversation, for example, under human capital distributors one of the kind of primary social enter- enterprise um, uh, uh, examples is Teach for America. Well, I had a conversation with a woman who's helping develop uh, Mothers to Mothers business model. Mothers to Mothers is a, another human service organization that is um, training um, uh, women who have successfully born children Um, in South Africa uh, and not transmitted AIDS to their children as peer counselors to other pregnant women um, and realized that the way that Teach for America trains and distributes their teachers was a very interesting model for how mothers-to-mothers needed to think about it. They're being asked to scale in a new country. The government of Kenya has asked them to come in and kind of triple their operations immediately, and they said, we're not sure how to do that, but how has Teach for America scaled that? Um, And so it was instantly apparent that these pure clusters have some practical value for the decisions people are making. I, today, I just thought it was interesting to, to map out um, some of the people that we'll be hearing from <laughs> Uh, later um, we're going to hear from uh, Jordan in a second from vision spring um, who is not just a physical capital provider has also done some very interesting things around developing human capital as a, a strategy um, but we have um, Kiva who is a broker of financial information happens to be a broker that doesn't take a cut so there's not a there's not a a profit test in here, right? There are a lot of different ways um, that you can make your money, even though you're using these techniques. Um, Mozilla, we've heard of, is you know really trying to uh, spread intellectual capital um, and the notion of openness around intellectual capital. We're going to hear from Paul Rice from Fair Trade, who is a really interesting model about how you um, create a standard or a certification platform and then license that um, and create value by uh, keeping people to that standard and spreading that brand. So without further ado, I'm actually going to turn it over to Jordan Caslow, who is the CEO and founder of Vision Spring. Jordan was one of the first interviews that we did. And we were so impressed with the care with which Jordan is not only changing his business model, he's actually versioning it. And he's been going through a series of deliberate choices uh, about different ways to balance um, uh, business model success and social value creation. And we're so thrilled to have him here to talk about that. Yeah. Don't mean to get
5: radio Okay. Well, thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Greg. Um, it's nice to be here and talk to you about Vision Spring. Um, Let me start with uh, a story that kind of exemplifies uh, why we started VisionSpring, and then I'll tell some additional stories about the different iterations of our business model and talk you through the evolution uh, of that. Uh, VisionSpring really started with uh, some incredible moments that I had when I was training to be an optometrist uh, many years back. Uh, One of my first patients was a woman in rural Mexico Uh, And when she came to the clinic, which when I got there, there was a line of 2,000 people around the clinic because this was the first time people had access to eye care. And when this woman, Maria Lopez, came to me, she had her Bible with her, clutched to her chest, and she basically said, you know, when a doctor asks you, well, how can I help you? What are you here for? What's your chief complaint? She said, I just want to be able to read my Bible again. And in talking to her, it became clear that she hadn't been able to read her Bible for 10 years. And she was a deeply religious person. And so that obviously had a major drain on her quality of life and her spiritual life. And so even as a first year student, this was an easy one for me. All she needed was a kind of glasses that you or I could go to CVS and buy off the rack. She needed a pair of plus 250 glasses. And I put the pair of glasses on her face and as soon as she put them on and she looked down at her Bible, she literally collapsed on the floor and she started hugging my legs crying because she could see her Bible again for the first time in a decade. And the next day I got to the clinic and she was the very first person in line. And so as the paranoid first year student, I thought immediately, oh gosh, I screwed up her eyes. She's there to complain. Uh, but quite the opposite. She came up to me and she said to me, a doctor for you, maybe they're just a pair of glasses, but to me, you've given me back my God. And she handed me 20 chickens as a, as a <laughs> gift of gratitude. Um, so that was a, a very powerful moment uh, for me personally. And it really put me on track to do the kind of work that we're doing at Vision Spring. Well, when we got back to school, we had seen 2,000 people like her. And we did some analysis of, well, who were these people? And of the 2,000 people, it became clear that 70% of them were there just to get eyeglasses. And 30% needed a whole host of things, from cataract surgery to glaucoma to antibiotics. But 70% just needed glasses. And of that 70%, a full half of them needed the kind of glasses that Maria Lopez needed, the ones that you or I can get at CVS. So I thought, well, that's a really inefficient way to spend all these doctors' time, spending a third of our time giving out what is, in America, a ready-made over-the-counter product. So. I started to think. Well, there were a lot of wonderful volunteers from the community helping us with this hospital. Why couldn't we just train them to sell these simple glasses to the women, so that when we left, they continued uh, uh, on, ongoing uh, enterprises? And so that was sort of the original idea of, of Vision Spring: is training people like Ramadevi on the right to, to take care of the people uh, who need glasses, like this fellow Chandra Muli on the left. And this was what our 1.0 model was. Help a local woman start a business, develop a business in a bag. It's a backpack about this big. It costs $75 to start the business. And we train them how to screen for a very simple problem called presbyopia that affects 400 million people in the world who don't have access to glasses. And Chandramuli is one of those people. And his story was he's a 48-year-old uh, tailor. And he was uh, supporting children, uh, a couple of children. And he told this, this, this following story. He had been, for many years, making 20 saris a month. And he had a, you know, a poor but perfectly stable li- livelihood. And as he reached his early, mid-40s, his vision started to fail because he couldn't see the details. And if everyone has seen a sari and how beautifully detailed they are. And so the word started getting out on the street that Chandra Muli's saris weren't so great anymore. They were a little bit sloppy in the edges and so forth. And next thing he knew, he was making 18 saris a month. And he tells us this whole two-year, three-year story of how his business went from 20 saris a month to 10 saris a month. And although the financial drain was so intense for him and caused a lot of family stress, the thing that he stressed personally the most was that he really lost his dignity. He used to go into his, sh- his shop with sort of a bounce in his step, feeling like he was a master at what he did. And as his vision failed, he sort of slinked into his store because he knew the word was out that his work wasn't quite what it used to be. And he was a couple of months away from having to close his store. In comes Rama Devi, who's been trained by VisionSpring. She does a simple screening. And again, just like my experience in Mexico, within a couple of minutes, Determined that he just needed a pair of plus three reading glasses in this case. And he could see immediately the details that he needed to. And he told us, sort of, the long two year process of building his business up from 10 saris to 12 saris back up to 20, and how he won back the confidence of his customers so now that he could see again. And after telling me this story, he sort of shook his head and he said, all for 170 rupees, which is about $4, that he just couldn't believe that a $4 investment was literally the difference that sort of put his life back on track. Now, the good news is uh, we found him. The bad news is there are literally millions of people like Chandra Mouly who are falling into poverty, losing their economic livelihoods right at the time when they're masters of their crafts, right at the time where they're at the center of the economic uh, heart of their community, supporting children and elderly parents. And it's such a simple thing to, to fix, to enable people to continue their livelihoods uh, as skilled craftspeople and, and so forth. Ramadevi, on the other hand, she had two, two boys also, and she was making around $22 a month when we met her. She's become our number one vision entrepreneur. She sells about 100 pair of glasses a month on average for the last three, four years now. Uh, so, she makes about $100 a month now, almost five times what she used to make. Her kids now go to a better school. She's put a metal roof on her house, a lot of good things. So, in a nutshell, that's what Vision Spring does. We find people like Ramadevi, put her in business to help people like Chandra Muli. And there's a nice, virtuous economic cycle in the community where they both uh, live and work. Now, that's the good news. And the good news is we have, we started with 18 women like uh, Ramadevi. Uh, About six years ago now. We have 8,500 women in business Uh, But all the news is not so rosy in our 1.0 model because what we found was that for every person like Rama Devi who could Build her business up to 100 units a month and sustain that the more the more common path was that the woman would start her business she would sell a bunch of glasses for the first six months. Then things would flatten out over a few months and then it would dip down to almost nothing. As she sort of worked through her community, as she worked through the low-lying fruit of her relatives and friends and neighbors. And there were very few like Ramadevi who took the initiative to buy a motorcycle. She took some of her savings and bought a motorcycle. She actually hired her husband as her driver and she now has a bigger territory. So it, took some, you know, it takes rare people like her to, to really make these things work So for every Ramadevi, there were four or five people who kind of had a good experience for a year or so and then fell out. And it became very expensive to have a direct sales force and to retrain people. It becomes a very expensive proposition for any business. So we we started to see that it was difficult to have a direct sales force. We were only selling really one product, reading glasses and sunglasses, so two products. And it was difficult to make a business work on a sustainable basis that only had a few products because these products weren't fast-moving consumer goods like cell phone time or shampoo or condoms where people would need to buy them more frequently. Uh, This was a durable product, and so once you made the sale, it would last for a couple of years. So there were some kinks in our our business model that we we said to ourselves a number of years back that if... We were going to continue in this path, then we would have to just clearly be a nonprofit organization that had no chance of ever becoming a true social enterprise that covered its costs or even maybe became profitable and could grow as the market uh, demand was created. And so we decided, you know, we, we were getting great impact because, as we described, the impact that once a pair, someone puts on a pair of glasses, you've got some great impact there. But we weren't going to be able to scale it because every time we put a pair of glasses on, it was an additional dollar we had to raise or $5 we had to raise, which got us further away from putting the next pair of glasses on. Whereas if you could get a positive contribution margin for each pair that you put on, then you're closer and to make the next pair sustainable. So that's when we started to look uh, for other business models. Um, and so the next idea, our 2.0 version was Well, we learned a lot of great lessons. We saw that people would buy eyeglasses. They'd buy them for about 10% of their monthly income. They'd buy them from their neighbors under certain circumstances. And let's take some of those learnings uh, and try to improve it. The problem, again, was that there was only one product. It was expensive to find and train and maintain these women. So what if we went to organizations that already had distribution platforms and already had larger networks, of people who were selling like products in their communities. And so we found an organization called BRAC, which may, maybe many are familiar with. It's a remarkable organization. It's been around for about four decades. They have trained, if you look at the woman in the green, she's a community health worker. They've trained 80,000 women to be community health workers selling simple products like oral rehydration salts or diarrhea control, Band-Aids, aspirins, sanitary napkins, simple things like that and they sell them to the people in their community. So we said to Brac, well, why not just add simple eyeglasses? That would be another value-added product to put in your basket. So they tried that with uh, 50 women, and it went very well. And then, since it went well in Brack style, they said, well, if it went well with 50, let's try it on 500. And we tried it on 500, and that went very well. And then earlier this year, we signed a memorandum uh, for over the next three years to go from 500 to 30,000 of the 80,000 women and if we hit 30,000 and things are still working well, then we'll do the additional 50,000. So here you see a fantastic opportunity to scale our intervention, leveraging off of existing distribution platforms. Our fixed cost structure in Bangladesh is zero. We don't have one staff person there. We service it from our India office where we provide some technical assistance. We provide assistance in terms of the glasses when the market speaks and the Bangladeshis like certain products. Uh, we react to that and we change our product based on what we're hearing and we're adding new products based on what the market's asking for. So that's sort of the role that we play. Uh, and so that's that's a, a good thing. In our 2.0 model, we plan to continue with BRAC and, and we're identifying other groups where starting to work with Grameen Phone in, Bangla, in uh, Indonesia. So other big platforms that exist that our product makes a natural addition to the basket of goods. So why is there a 3.0 that you're going about to see? Well, because we have a lot of vision entrepreneurs in other countries, uh, we listen to them. And our vision entrepreneurs in El Salvador were telling us they've got a couple of pain points. One was that they weren't making enough money, and two was that their reputations in their communities were mixed. And we said, well, what do you mean? They said, well, you know, we hold these vision campaigns and a bunch of people come out and it takes a long time to screen them, and for the half of the people who need just the simple reading glasses, they're happy. But the other half of people have more complicated vision problems and they need prescription eyeglasses. And they walk away feeling that their services, their needs weren't met. And uh, so there's a lot of buzz in the community that Vision Spring really doesn't help everybody and, and disappoints a lot of people. So they, on their own devices, came up with an idea uh, to hire an optome- a local optometrist and to sell a $1 voucher. And with that voucher, they get to keep the dollar. And that voucher entitles the customer to go to our office at first once a month to see the optometrist, and the optometrist examines their eyes and can provide them with prescription eyewear. Well, when we did it the first time, the optometrist only got through 25% of the line. So we said, okay, we better do this a little more frequently. We did it every Sunday instead of once a month. Long story short, within two months, we hired the optometrist full-time. Two months later, we hired a second one, and the demand for prescription eyewear was huge, and we, started to understand why. In this town of Santa Ana where we worked, there were, if you walked around the town with me, you would see that there's about a 300,000 person town. You would see that there's nine optical stores. So you would think on first flush that, well, what's the problem? There's optical stores all around. But if you went into those optical stores to buy a simple pair of prescription glasses, you'd be lucky to get out of there under $150. So what became clear was that where the, the business exists of optical, it's always concentrated on the 10% of the people who own 90% of the wealth. And the working poor, that number is not even close to what they could afford. So we've brought our, our glasses down to $25. And that is a number that the working poor in El Salvador can really afford. And it's also a number in which we can deliver and still have very significant margins. Our uh, fully loaded cost of goods in El Salvador averages around $5 to $7. So we have a nice margin if we can sell it at 25, uh, and they're getting a pair of glasses that is, you know, six times less than what the market is is dealing with. So there are a couple of labs that make the lenses for all those nine stores, and within six months we became their number one customer because we unlocked a whole market that was never being unlocked. So... Going forward, we're going to continue with our 2.0 model and 3.0 model. We're building out more stores like this. Uh, our goal in El Salvador is to have four within the next six months. We've got two. We're building our third right now. And we're going to study the heck out of those four stores. And once those four stores, we really understand every aspect of the business. Our plan is to go from four to 40. Now, what's interesting about the stores is it also kind of re-in invigorates our 1.0 model. Because each store or hub that we create, think of LensCrafters for the Poor, is surrounded by a dozen vision entrepreneurs in the outlying communities. And so they're the ones who are kind of finding the people to bring into the store. So as we build each of these hubs, we're kind of going back to our 1.0 model, but it's sort of a fortified 1.0 model because these women now have three ways to make money. They can sell the simple glasses at the village level, they can, buy, they can sell vouchers, and they also get a cut of the prescription glass sale. So they're making a lot more money and we're also making a lot more money and we're broadening our impact by helping uh, a lot more people and many people who need even more profound vision correction. So I'll stop there and then we can continue. But that's a sense of our sort of business model evolution. Bachelors. So thank you. Um, thank you.
4: Thank you. Let you guys ask questions, and Greg and I may also ask some questions of Jordan, and you can ask questions of us, and so we'll have a little conversation. Mm-hmm. Should I turn my microphone
3: back on? Is that allowed? Yeah. Yep. Right. So, he wants to start with a question for Jordan. Yeah. Uh, so these are the ones that the model seems to Which ones did you try that didn't
5: work? Good question. Well, the 1.0 model, from a business perspective, didn't work because it was too expensive to uh, scale. So it worked in that we helped women make some money. It worked in that uh, we were getting some glasses out there. But the women weren't making enough money for long enough, so they would tend to fall out of the business. Uh, And uh, the amount of money that we captured wasn't even close to the amount of money that we had to spend to put that network into place. So the 1.0 model, on its own, was a model that, that didn't work. Uh, and that's why we sort of morphed it to the 2.0 model, and we kind of incorporated it also into the 3.0 model. Yes? Um, are you now self-sustaining,
1: or are you still seeking
5: subsidy? We are still, as an organization-wide, we're still seeking subsidy. This year, we, uh, our costs in El Salvador are fully covered by the revenue that's generated in El Salvador. And our BRAC partnership is f- fully cost-recovered uh, in Bangladesh. But as an organization, uh, we're still reliant on subsidies and, and, ph- and long-term philanthropic growth capital. So
4: are, you, are the transaction costs in different localities very different from each
5: other? Yes. So, for instance, in El Salvador, uh, the average consumer... We'll pay $25 uh, for glasses. We're in, in India and in Indonesia uh, where we're taking that model now. We're starting to test it. It looks like it's going to be closer to $10. We'll be about as much as we'll be able to get. So we're trying to drive down our cost of goods uh, in India so that we can capture some bigger margins. But the good news is there are a few more people in India than El Salvador. So, And,
6: and what, do you make the glasses also locally
5: to generate business there? Or do you- no. We source from China uh... because (laughs) surprise surprise because the uh... industry there has basically the whole optical industry has moved from italy and europe and japan to china over the last ten years and the quality to cost ratio is almost impossible to match anywhere else and we we work really hard of getting good quality glasses on people's faces we could source in india cheaper but the quality really goes down like twenty fold because it's not export quality, whereas the Chinese stuff is export quality.
4: I want to ask if uh, you can also say your name and affiliation as
3: you ask your questions. Yeah, you interesting just on this, I don't know if the, is this live. Is. On on this outsourcing question, we've seen this with other organizations as well. So Kickstart, that um, operates in Africa and sells treadle pumps to farmers to increase the productivity of their farms, originally started with the idea that those pumps would be locally produced and created. It now sources them in China, um, and in many cases that may be. The most cost-effective uh, move. So uh, I think Vision Spring wasn't the only one to end up making that that kind of decision. Uh, and we've seen other organizations. It was a group Help the World See. I don't know if you've ever run into them. It yeah. was originally designed to produce glasses in-country, and I think that's uh, it. It proves to be a very hard, uh, a very tough uh, model. I think to to apply, but sure. to others. Oh,
5: We have multiple factories. Um, I used to own a a company called Skojo. And so uh, it was a for-profit company that sold high-end reading glasses to places like Saks Fifth Avenue. So I'd spent a lot of time in China understanding uh, what manufacturers do what and where the uh, lower cost manufacturing is. So using that uh, background and history, I was able to kind of know what factories do the best work. Uh, and there's even in China, not all the factories do great work, and so you do have to sort of know what you're doing and and uh, decide which factory to work to work with. Kate? Hi. Hi. and i
6: Hi. am also
5: You.
6: I'm uh, also affiliated with Brock. Brock, what you say? So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the economics of the BRAC model with the community health workers. That, what kind of margins? Because the women get, the women get margins. BRAC purchases in bulk from you. Yes. And so if you could just kind of work through the economics of that model uh, in terms of the costs and who gets what, and because Brock is in so many countries and is now in an expansion mode in East Africa and in West Africa that you know as a business proposition why wouldn't you uh... you can stick with BRAC and roll out on a worldwide basis um, the community health worker model, the 2.0 model.
5: Absolutely Um, and actually BRAC has asked us to go to Afghanistan and to uh, East and West Africa with them And we felt that, uh, we said no right now because we still want to get Bangladesh right. You know, We're still only scratching the surface of their 80,000 person network there. And we think we need to walk a bit before we run. BRAC is a little bit impatient uh, in a good way. But at the same time, uh, we're a small organization and we want to make sure we get everything right in Bangladesh first. So our long-term plan is definitely to scale with BRAC. If we can make it work, you know, we've got about 7,000 women now trained to sell our glasses in Bangladesh. We're going to go from 7 to 30,000 in the next three years. If we get to a place where we're comfortable that that is all working really well, then we'll, we'll, our probably our next place uh, to go is going to be East Africa, uh, is w- what we've uh, talked to BRAC about. Uh, and then we can scale through their network, as you said. In terms of the economics, uh, probably the simplest way to think of it is um, we sell the glasses. This is rounding error, just, but just to keep it simple. We sell the glasses to BRAC for about a dollar. They sell it to their, vis- their Shatsu for uh, $2. And then the Shatsu it sells it to the final user for $3. So, there is about a dollar margin that BRAC keeps, a dollar margin that the seller keeps, and we, our margins are around 20, uh, 25% uh, with BRAC. So, that's sort of the economics of it.
1: Okay. My name's Ted Ladd. Hi, Ted. Just as you layered your product into BRAC's distribution channel, Do you see other products and services that you could layer into your distribution
5: channel in El Salvador? Uh, Well, the first was prescription eyewear uh, that we're we're doing that with. Um, We're starting to look at uh, some simple over-the-counter pharmaceuticals. One of the most common complaints in these areas are people who have gritty, itchy, teary eyes. So we're starting to test um, antihistamine drops and other kinds of eye drops that you could get um, here over the counter. And in our first three months of sales of them, they're, uh, they're selling really, really well. Uh, there's a huge market for that. And, uh, and so that's the first product. So probably what we're gonna do is sort of look at those simple OTC things that fall in the eye care section and see how that can make our business model more robust. And then if we have opportunities and appetite for extending it, We're we're open to that, but we'll we'll probably, at least for the near term, stick stick in the eye care uh, sphere. But a lot of, you know, we've we've talked to a lot of some of the solar energy um, providers uh, in, in India, for instance, and even before glasses, vision starts with light, and so if you can't, if there's no light, you can't see. So it makes some internal it makes some uh, sense you know organically from from what we do so uh will our vision entrepreneurs be selling uh, solar panel lights and stuff like that not anytime soon but we're we're exploring those kinds of things
4: todd has another question is that your you mind if i ask you another question? sure go ahead no, i'm still ted
1: still ted sorry <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. so to follow up on the question there for what business models you considered could you talk about what didn't make it, what's not 1.0 or 2.0 or 3.0, what didn't make it into test at all? What did you literally look at for 20 minutes?
5: We, we've <laughs> looked at a number of things for even more than 20 minutes. One was a wholesale channel using the uh, pharmacy channels. So, so it would be natural to think, because if you look at the American marketplace, where most eyeglasses are sold, they're sold over the counter in uh, CVS's, uh, big box retailers supermarkets and so so forth so we tested those channels uh, in india pretty aggressively both in the north and the south and it was a big flop both times and that's because the awareness of this product in the commu- in the communities where we were working was close to zero and so when people went into those pharmacies and saw a rack of glasses, they really had no bearing in terms of how to relate to that point of purchase display. Uh, They weren't going, like in America, people go in and say, "Oh, I can't see the menu or whatever, I gotta go into CVS and buy my readers before my flight or whatever it might be. Whereas in India, people aren't aware of the fact that they need eyeglasses to begin with, and then if they do know they need eyeglasses, they certainly don't know what strength they need. So that that display was just sort of there but had no um, pull to it Uh, and so what we think has to happen first is for us to through our vision entrepreneurs as they raise the awareness and one of the things that we teach our vision entrepreneurs is to teach their customers what strengths they need that over time will develop the market and then those vision entrepreneurs can start to sell the glasses to more like wholesale on a wholesale basis to consumer, or after they've gone direct to consumer. So that's one area that that didn't work. And, And another thing that is very interesting to observe in these markets, if you ask, if you're in a poor rural area in India or Latin America, wherever it may be, Africa, and you ask somebody, would you spend, let's say, $7 for a pair of glasses, almost immediately they'd say no. But then if you demonstrated to them what vision was like before and after, and we had what we call our—we enable that seeing is believing moment, like that woman who saw the Bible. Immediately, they say, "Oh yeah, I'll find that seven dollars because that's a real value for me. I can now see, I can sew, I can read, I can do whatever I need to do up close." And so, a lot of the work that we need to do is to take this latent demand and turn it into an active demand by having more and more of these seeing is believing moments. And that's why a social enterprise. That is creating markets rather than entering markets is a much longer-term and much more expensive proposition to start a business than uh, than if there was already a market for eyeglasses. And we said, well, we've got a more stylish one or a cheaper one. That's not what we're doing. We're creating markets for a whole new product category in these in these places that we're working.
4: You, uh, I want to call on someone who hasn't spoken yet. Hi, my name is
0: Joy. Um,
4: I was wondering if you could speak
0: to some of the country-by-country differences that made it difficult or easier to operate or scale, and then how you approached differences between countries.
5: Mm -hmm. Um, Well, we're we're in 10 countries now. The only country that we closed down because it didn't work was Haiti. Uh, Every other country we've we've worked in has worked to, to some degree or other. In Haiti, it didn't work because literally the Ophthalmologic Society said Uh uh-uh, we're not allowing this. And so we learned pretty quickly after that not to go through the ophthalmologic or optometric societies, to to be sort of stealth. Um, And so uh, that was an interesting example. In South Africa, it was the... on the other extreme is South Africa. The uptake in South Africa was just unbelievable. The, The women who were selling our products were the most incredible salespeople. They knew they could sell anything, um, and this was a product that was totally new to the area, and they sold, we ordered a 1,000 for our test, and they sold them out in a couple of weeks. Um, and they, like, five times more sales than any other uh, pilot program that we've ever had. And we targeted, when we went into it, we targeted the price point to be $5, but they ended up selling them for $14 because the demand was so great, uh, and the the... Only other way to get glasses in that area, uh, again, was like 100, $100 to $150. And so even at $14, it was a huge value proposition. And so they said to us, we don't want to leave money on the table. And so you know, how can you argue with that when people are willing to, to buy it? Uh, so South Africa was like sort of the, um, the other end of the spectrum. And then there's them in between. South Africa was 2.0. It was with an organization called Women's Development Business. And so this is an organization that helps women uh, start and s- sustain businesses. And, uh, you know, uh, what they were doing is helping them start a lot of businesses, but a lot of them were the same business. So they end up sort of almost competing with each other. And it's like, you know, how many zucchinis can you sell? And how many uh, how many uh, clothing stores can you open? And so this when this came in, it was like a whole new line of business that uh, they had. And so it was very successful for them. And uh, we're just... We're just back from uh, the program directors just leaving today from South Africa, and they are uh, tripling the number of people that they're training for uh, for this product. So that's, that's gone really nicely.
4: I have a question about um, sustainability and scaling. So version one was pretty expensive because you're basically building your own sales force. Yeah. Version two is was a little bit cheaper because you're... Benefiting from a partnership with someone else who does a lot of that training, yep. and version three, it seems like is probably on the expensive side, but you have a margin there right. to deal with. That's right. So if you look at these, you have not given up on one. You have you actually have three versions simultaneously inside your organization. What's the balance that you're going to try to 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 bake between them um, to right. run sustainably, and is it important to run sustainably?
5: Yeah. The the pure yeah. one is. Going away over time. If uh, we keep one, it'll be over time part of three. So, in other words, where we, like in India, we have uh, about 50 women who are part of 1.0. And now we're looking to put a fixed location in geographic places that are surrounding, where where you have your 1.0 entrepreneurs surrounding it. So, over time, I think one will morph to three. Gotcha. Uh, Two will continue, particularly like uh, we're talking with BRAC as both in Bangladesh and hopefully beyond and with women's development business and other kinds of models that are working. And then three, I think, uh, the nice thing about three is that I think it's the one that is in many ways the most scalable because there are only so many BRACs in the world. Um, Whereas that three model, it's quite quite scalable. in, ter- in terms of, is it important for us to be sustainable, it, it really is, because um, the-, the problem is so big. As I mentioned, there's a half a billion people, it's about s- it's 560 million people is the estimate of people who are visually disabled because they don't have glasses in the world. And so we didn't start this to sell a few hundred thousand pair of glasses. We really wanted to make a dent in that overall problem. And what I'm starting to sense as a social enterprise is that if we stay a social enterprise, and there's many social enterprises that uh, are doing wonderful work as we are, but the vast majority of them are sort of stuck in this 2 to $10 million zone that they'll always be stuck in, always dependent on the good graces of philanthropic capital and never be able to scale, whereas the marketplace, if we can get to a place where the market's driving us, then the sky's the limit because, because There's just more capital there, and our impact is all about putting glasses on people's noses. So by definition, we're not going to lose our impact as long as we stick to the $1 to $4 a day consumer, which we are are sticking to, um, there is enough of them willing to pay, enough for glasses, for us to, I think, build something that is eminently scalable. Um, And at some point, uh, we, we will need more capital to do that. So can I ask a follow-up
4: to that? Sure. So it seems to me the opportunity that you have that a lot of other social enterprises don't have is the difference between your cost per unit and the hundred and what did you say, twenty-five dollar eyeglass costs in El Salvador, right? You have a big gap that you can place your profit margin somewhere in there and make money. And my question is, if you can do that, can't somebody else come in and do that too? And if they're selling eyeglasses, to, is that is that good or bad
5: for you? Could somebody else do that too? Yes, absolutely. But from what we've seen, there's not a heck of a lot of interest. I'm trying to get them to do that. <laughs> that's, that's part of my job. I, I was just meeting with Essilor, which is a $4 billion French company uh, that sell, is the biggest maker of ophthalmic lenses. And I'm saying to them, listen, if you want to get 2 3% growth and still concentrate on the rich billion, you might, on a good year, you might be able to steal a couple of market share percent from your competitor. But if you want to get double-digit growth for the foreseeable future, take a look at the 4 billion people who need glasses who are willing to pay. Because I know what their cost of goods are. And it's, it's, they could do it if they wanted to. So part of my job as a social entrepreneur is also to try to bring the big players into it to to compete with us. And that will be also part of our success. Um, So absolutely, there's room for them. And we just sort of have to show them the way. Uh, And I think in order for us to really make a difference, it's not going to just be VisionSpring taking care of 600 million people who need glasses. We've got to get the Essilors and Luxoticas, these big companies, uh, to recognize that this is a real market to be played in
4: and then stay in the market in the right way.
5: And stay in the market in, in the right, right way. The right, the right yeah. population, yeah.
4: Yeah. Uh, Kate again, and then we'll go to the back. Yeah, to, um, Let's give you a microphone, because we can't hear you.
6: <laughs> An observation that as you've, uh, Jordan, as you've talked about this evolution from uh, 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0, there is there is a fundamental uh, piece of your business model that I've observed in the field, which is your methodology, that. Has found has continued through each one of these evolutions, so that, and that is their methodology is of testing people's uh, eyesight, is uh, very well suited and it, for this particular market at the bottom of the pyramid, in that you don't have to be literate, the the person is very um, you know easily trained in order to get the distance right to be able to see, you know whether the person can see or not. They use right. a string. So there is a kind of, um, there's a tremendous value in the methodology that you've created that is used not only in 1.0, but the BRAC community health workers are trained in that same methodology. Absolutely. And the women uh, vision workers around the hub of the El Salvador enterprises, they're also trained in that methodology. So it's not a barrier to entry in that anybody could learn that methodology, but it is something that you know, you've really held on to. And I think it's, um, it is a competitive advantage in serving these markets. And you've used it very well in each, as you've evolved the business model uh, from 1.0 to
5: 3.0. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I I very much agree. And you know, one one of the things that I tell Essilor is that listen, as a huge multi-billion dollar company, you have many strengths that we don't have. (laughs) But one thing that we have that you don't have is that we have native intelligence. We we know how to interface with these communities in a way that it's going to take you years. And if you want to do, if you if you want inexpensive R and D for that population, here we are. We're, we're right here for you, kind of thing. So, yeah, we're going to do yeah, exactly. That's what we're going to need. There were some hands in the back.
4: Let's get that we'll one and, all the way in the back first. That. See
2: if
4: it'll reach. Watch out, Paul! Your water's going to go.
1: <laughs> Hi, my name is Jay Grant, and I'm with a marketing consulting firm. Question for you: As as you've gone out and, and go into these countries and, and looking at it, and I'm sort of comparing it to our market, which is never fair, but is there a value of a brand when the when the eyeglasses are purchased? And you talk to Eslar or any of these others, is is there a value to a to a local brand of lo- branding it under the Brac name? Or I don't know if there's anything imprinted on them, but is there a value of a brand in in selling these and as you look at the competitive, potential competitive market of it growing,
5: do you see a need to brand the glasses in each of the markets? The simple answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, People really care about brands in the base of the pyramid from what we've seen. Uh, Because so often these consumers have been taken advantage of uh, by product companies that are often selling crummy products that if you create a brand that has integrity and value, then they stick with it because they don't want to be taken care of, uh, advantage of. These are the most value conscious consumers on the planet. And when they find a brand that works and is repeatable and has integrity, they, uh, there's a lot of brand equity uh, to be captured. So absolutely, brand equity is an important part uh, of this. We, ch- we do put VisionSpring on all of our glasses, on all the temples, on all our cases, uh, on all of our the ca- cases that hold the glasses, on all the cases of the women who carry the glasses. In BRAC's case, we co-brand. So our the backpack will have BRAC on one side and VisionSpring on the other. Uh, the glasses also, the case will have BRAC and VisionSpring. So we'll either vi- brand it VisionSpring alone or co-brand it. And now we're also, with some other organizations, where. Putting it in their brand, and as long as uh, if they want that and they order enough, we help them build uh, their brand, local brand, and Vision Spring is sort of a, a silent uh, partner.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Jim Thompson, founder of Budget Lines. Um, I understand it's between 1.0 and 2.0, no fixed cost, no sales space, et cetera.
5: I don't quite get the difference between 1.0 and 3.0. Okay. The 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 real innovation in 3.0 is our ability to sell prescription eyewear. So if you take the pie chart of people who need glasses in the world and you cut it in half, half of it are just people who need the ready-made eyeglasses that you can get at CVS. And that's where we started because it was the low-lying fruit, it was simpler, it was less expensive. But then as we got traction in the community and as we st- started to hear from our vision entrepreneurs, they wanted to make more money and they, want, they were turning away half of the customers who were coming to them, we started to figure out the other half. So the 3.0 model is our effort to get into the prescription eyewear business. Uh, and that's why we have these, sort of, these stores now with optometrists that are uh, fixed locations that don't have to do marketing because the vision entrepreneurs who surround them are b- driving the customers in. So in their village as so they're... Are not your employees? Those are our vision entrepreneurs. So our vision entrepreneurs are the one... Okay. So they're independent. None of the vision entrepreneurs are employees of ours. They're uh, independent sales force. And they make money how? In El Salvador, they make money by selling reading glasses, sunglasses, and eye drops in the community. They s- make uh, money by selling the voucher to g- get someone uh, an eye exam, they keep that dollar. And then they make money if that person goes to our hub and buys a $25 pair of glasses, they'll get uh, 10% of the sale. So that's, those are the three. When
3: something comes to them, they, they determine which category they're
5: in. Exactly. Our, our screening methodology <laughs> enables, so enables them to do that. To, to exactly. Okay. Is that clear?
4: Diana is next, over here.
0: Diana Wells, Ashoka. Um, My question is not designed to question your focus and your uh, intent on scale, but to draw out what Ashoka sees is the market intelligence that the social entrepreneur has that uh, is just beginning to get recognized and is of huge value to big business. Mm -hmm. Um, What in the ecosystem are you seeing as other Things that connect, so the solar lamps as a you know a way to prevent uh, eye vision uh, degeneration. Are there other things that you're finding either that are geographically specific or uh, that connect up with vision problem that w- it is important for? is evidence of the market intelligence that you have and the native intelligence that you're,
5: mm-hmm. Well, look, I, I, there are a number of different ways to answer that question. Um, you know, one, one thing that I often talk about is that although people think about us as a vision organization, an eyeglass organization, we're really an economic development organization that uses vision as a gateway to development. And so what's clear is that there's some very powerful links between vision and development. The first is what we've been working on for, for, since the beginning is the link between vision and work. As you saw with Chandra Muli, if you can't see, you can't work. And so that relationship is very powerful. The second relationship between vision and development that we're increasingly starting to understand now that we're selling prescription glasses is the link between vision and learning. If a kid can't see the blackboard and can't see to read, there's obviously a profound negative impact on their capacity to learn. And in the nine to fourteen age category, when people tend to often need their first pair of glasses, uh, we're seeing a lot of customers in El Salvador with that coming with that problem. And the, some of these kids are coming in with, uh, you know, twenty-two hundred vision and. And they've been told that they can't—you know—they're not smart and they can't keep up with school. And it's not because of any lack of native intelligence there; it's just a lack—they can't see. I'll tell a funny story that my that first um, eye care, uh, what do we call it, clinic that we set up in Mexico. It was sponsored by the Lions Club, and we got there were 12 optometry school uh, students and four professors. And we got onto a bus to take us to where we were going. And it was flying through the night. And the Lions Club provided some water and Coca-Cola at the front of the bus. And so I went to get a Coca-Cola. And I see the driver. He's like this. I tapped my professor on the shoulder. And I said, he looks like he's going to be our first patient. Sure enough, he had a minus three prescription. Which is, if anyone has, knows their prescription, you can't see, you know, you can't even see the TV. And just the ironic nature of this, guy, this blind guy driving 16 eye doctors through the night of Mexico. It was just a ridiculous state of affairs.
4: David,
2: how does his end up. I'm a minus three, so I'm glad you made it. Uh, yeah, thanks. I, I can't try. But... Um, in terms of the legacy that you're leaving behind in these communities, I mean, it's very easy to count the number of noses that have glasses on them, right? And even if it's hard to measure the economic value of that, but you're also training a lot of people to be salespeople. Yep. you're teaching a lot of people to sell, and I'm wondering if, if there is sort of an alumni effect that that you've noticed, or what happens to the <laughs> women that go on uh, that sell these? Do they, you know, it, when a, when people go through Teach for America, they teach, but then. They're branded as someone who's done Teach for America, who's very gotten very high quality training, you know, and they go on and do great things and live. Are you seeing that happen in these areas where people who are, you know, doing a Vision Spring practice, then go on and do? Uh,
5: The the answer is yes, although we don't track it closely, we don't spend time and resources tracking that. But so there's certainly anecdotal stories I can tell. I mean, one one of the things that, and I often talk about this to our team. Is that in a way, even though you think you're doing great with vision, one of the most lasting things that we do is we are increasing the self-esteem of women all over the world because they see their, their power, because they're able to sell. And I can't tell you how many times I've met a vision entrepreneur and the first time I meet them at the beginning, let's say the beginning training, they can't even look at me. And then I go back a year later, and they're like shaking my hand, they're looking me in the eye, and they have a whole different demeanor to them. Uh, and it really does transform people when they learn how to, to sell and knock on doors that aren't necessarily inviting. Uh, and those skills are very transferable, not just to other businesses and sales business, but also just to the, the self-esteem of the individual. So we definitely see that. We've seen some of our vision entrepreneurs uh, go off and do other things, get hired by pharmaceutical companies and other bigger companies in the area, uh, and so retention is, is an issue because uh, they often aspire to doing something more. We get poached, we get poached yeah. So we've seen that.
4: Uh, in the back. Hi,
0: What's your organization like? How, to, how are you organized?
5: Our organization uh, is small. Uh, We have intentionally kept our budget below $2 million because I'm of the mindset that the delta between your fixed costs and your revenue has to be small to be a social enterprise because then you have a better chance of closing it and then letting the market take over. So we've kept our organization really lean and mean. and Our budget's been under $2 million for the last uh, three or four years. Uh, four years ago, we sold 30,000 pair of glasses. This year, we'll sell over a quarter million with the same budget. So, so we're, we're all about leveraging off of BRAC's. And uh, you know, I always joke with BRAC that if you see those nature shows, and you see those giant whales, and then you see the little sucker fish on the back, we're the sucker fish. Uh, and so that's sort of what our specialty is. So we're a small organization. We have an uh, office of uh, about six people in New York. We have an office in India with around 15 people. And we have an office in El Salvador with about four people now, three or four people, depending on, on the day. Um, and, and then we have uh, 10 partners in 10 countries. And we have over 8,500 independent sales reps selling our product, uh, mostly in Bangladesh and India but in other places too.
4: In the back,
1: right. Christy. Uh, thank you. Christy Chen at Richards. Um, your organization has been so agile in reinventing itself. Um, what, what have you done from a board structure or from countries learning from each other um, that has enabled you to take on these explorations, these pilots? And you know, is there anything you've learned from best practices on how to structure organizations so they are agile and
3: prototyping?
5: Right. Well, uh, first I'd say that uh, if it wasn't for Draper Richards and Mr. Draper, our board wouldn't uh, even have existed. As part of our learning from, from you and your organization is the importance of a board and the importance of putting people on the board who, even though they might come from the business world, have the flexibility of mind to understand that what we're doing is very innovative and there are no answers and you just have to keep trying and so that's sort of uh, the nature of the people we've we've got on the board, people who are very fluid in thinking through these kinds of issues. So um, we also have local advisory boards in some of our countries and so that way we can, when issues that relate to specific countries come up, we can defer to people who have deeper expertise than we do about the local context. So that's helped us also uh... when we're making an argument to the central board uh... if we can first get the local advisory board to buy into it then it's almost impossible for the local the the new york based board to say no because they're relying on the local experts who who see why it makes sense to do something completely different because our models uh, although they've been somewhat uh... uh, you know staged they they're also quite different uh... than the predecessor models. So.
4: The only thing I would add to that that we've seen, and we haven't looked into this in a great detail, but um, once you grow your staff, it's harder to be agile in completely reinventing yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see staff size. Low staff size correlates with a lot more change and flexibility. Uh, we have- I think we've reached the. Oh, so we yeah, want to wrap up a we little need bit. To have some yeah, yeah if Greg would like, like to wanna, well, wanna do that.
3: All, all of us probably should have a, should have a chance at, at wrapping up. Um, what I wanted to say is just a little bit about why we love to have Jordan come along when we talk about uh, business models. Um, you've probably figured it out, uh, basically. We, what we're trying to model here through Jordan's example is the process of learning and adapting and adjusting your, mo- your business model as you go along. Um, what we've seen and what we've learned as we've done our research so far is that the best um, social entrepreneurs in terms of uh, the, the most astute about linking their business model to impact are those that are constantly on the outlook for ways to uh, to fine-tune their business model to adapt it to come up with new uh, to new with new versions and are doing it in a way that links those new versions to their impact and uh, vision spring has certainly done that we haven't Talked as much about uh, about the impact measurement side of this, but VisionSpring is constantly thinking about how these models link to the ability to achieve that big impact on uh, on on vision and and on getting the glasses on the noses throughout the world, um, and it's been part of the the process as they've gone through this business model adjustment and. Um, Uh, We think that this is an excellent model uh, to illustrate that in terms of what we hope to come out of our research are some frameworks and ideas that will stimulate people to go through that kind of learning process. There's obviously not one business model fits all uh, for the social sector, for social entrepreneurs. Um, your business model is going to have to be adapted. It may have to be adapted in different countries to, to fit different uh, cultures, different um, uh, economies. Uh, the, the ability to pay changes, as we've heard from Jordan. I think it's a, it's a powerful illustration of that as well. Um, and it may have to evolve over time. And I think this uh, example is a powerful powerful illustration of that lesson uh, as well. So, for us, this is a, a, a perfect illustration of what's coming out of our research, um, and what we hope to produce will be s- uh, something that will help other uh, social entrepreneurs go through this learning and thinking and adjustment process and stimulate their thinking as they go through it so that they can start to see options that it might not otherwise have seen. So, I'd, I'll pass the baton to Kathy to make a, any more remarks. I, I don't have anything to
4: add to that. I thought that was great. Do you yeah. want to add
5: something? Just one minute. I would say the real central um, premise of what we're doing is something that companies here in America have learned to do forever and that is listen to the market and interface with the market and take your customers really seriously and they're the ones who will tell you what's going to work and what's not going to work. And if we had just kept forcing our ideas onto the marketplace and onto the consumer, we would have, we would have failed. And the only reason that we're, we're getting more successful uh, is because we're listening to our consumer in terms of what they want to buy, what they want to pay, who they want to buy it from, where they want to buy it. Uh, and then we take that, we translate all that knowledge right back to the floor of the factory and create products uh, that they want, and then take back to our learning lab to deliver those products in a manner that's consistent with what, how they want the product delivered to them. And so that uh, sounds simple. It took us seven years to kind of learn that. And you know, we see a lot of uh, new social enterprises coming up with uh, these big ideas to go for profit right away and get lots of money uh, initially but they're gonna get beat up by the market pretty quickly and those are gonna be expensive lessons learned. So I think the, f- the field of social enterprise is a very important field because it enables the social entrepreneurs who are trying to create markets where markets have failed to learn those lessons using public resources because those lessons take a longer time than the appetite of the typical for-profit investor will, will put up with. So it's a very important field that will ultimately uh, drive a lot of impact uh, to, to to the world. And so I'm thrilled to be part of it um, and play my small role, so thank you.
4: I think the you. other, I will wrap up with this small comment. I think the other thing that, that everyone in this room can see is um, not only are you attentive to the market, but you're very honest, uh-huh. um, you know, and, and, and it takes a leader who can see what you are doing and ask those questions and articulate very clearly what you're learning, what you are thinking is happening, and test it. Um, and it's a, it's a great um, asset to your organization. It's an asset to the field that you can, you can share that with us. So well,
5: thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for sharing.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Produced by Duke University. Online at duke.edu.